This morning we are um, going to be turning to uh, the book of Acts, and we are in Acts chapter 2, where we, we come to the, the story of Pentecost, um, just at least the opening um, uh, story to Pentecost. When we think about the overview of the whole Bible, we can summarize it in four words, okay? So four words, if you get these four words, you've got the whole thing, okay? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation, okay? Consummation is triggered by the second coming of Christ, and and the world is made new. So creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Now, almost all of human history is in that third period of time, redemption. We live in a fallen world, in a a fallen uh, history. And so within that period of redemption, you have these critical epical uh, events that take place. And the church generally celebrates these events uh, beginning at Christmas with the incarnation. Incarnation is, is the term we give to God coming in the flesh, God coming, the Son of God uh, taking on flesh uh, and, and uh, uh, being born as, as Jesus of Nazareth. And then we skip towards the, the end of his life, and, and you go from incarnation to crucifixion, the death of Christ, followed by the resurrection, followed, and we celebrate each of those as kind of big services. And this next one, we we don't, maybe we should, ascension, where Christ is enthroned at the right hand of God. But the fifth of these great kind of uh, epical events in this period of redemption is Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And and so that's what we are celebrating here uh, today. And so just as um, uh, incarnation, death, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus are all one time, not to be repeated events, so too is this unique uh, day, this unique outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day during the Feast of Pentecost, uh, and so this morning, we're just going to rehearse the signs and the wonders uh, that are associated with this, this historic outpouring. And, and what we'll see is that this outpouring leads to this worldwide witness. Would you stand then for the reading of, of God's word? This is Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at, the, at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya uh, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, 
both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Well, let's pray. Spirit of the living God, our helper, our comforter, the paraclete, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be nurtured by your truth so that we would better love you and love one another and serve the world. Amen. You may be seated. So we're rehearsing just some of these events and and these first two uh, symbols or or these first two, uh, one's visible, uh, one they hear, but these two signs that appear with the the filling of the Spirit, uh, wind and fire, are in part, um, they have a long history of of symbolic meaning. And further, um, what we, I think the purpose for the wind and the fire is to mark this occasion as, as kind of unmistakable, you know, there were promises that Jesus had just recently given to his disciples, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you might wonder, is this it? Well, God is going to make it clear, this is it. Pentecost was a harvest festival. It was celebrated 50 days following Passover, which means the death of Christ took place roughly 50 days earlier. Following the resurrection... Jesus remains with his disciples uh, for 40 days, and then he ascends into heaven. From the time of his ascension into heaven to the time of Pentecost was somewhere between seven and ten days. And in that period of time, there are 120 followers of Jesus, including the apostles, praying in an upper room. And this is the location where the rushing wind is heard and the tongues of fire are seen as the Holy Spirit is sent uh, by the Father, by Christ, in the name of Christ, as a great gift bestowed upon his followers. The external signs of wind and fire, again, have this theological significance They heard not just a breeze coming through the windows, but Luke describes it as a mighty rushing wind. You know, those of you who have had the misfortune, perhaps, of of being close to a hurricane, or perhaps, you know, in the Midwest, well, we did have a hurricane, Hugo, right? Like 2009. Um, That was something. Um, But maybe some of you have also uh, had the misfortune of being near um, a tornado, and you may remember what the sound of a tornado is like. It's like a, 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 it's like a locomotive, this kind of train coming through. The, the wind is so powerful and mighty. This is something what we're meant to imagine. And it's so noisy that it's drawing. This is what's going to draw the masses. This is what the, why the multitudes assemble is because of the sound of uh, the 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 noise created by this mighty rushing wind. Now, it, it may be helpful to understand there's also a play in language, uh, both in Old and New Testaments, because the same word for breath or wind is the same for spirit. 
Okay, so spirit, wind, breath, it's the same word, both uh, Greek and in Hebrew. And there are key places where the spirit or the breath of God play very important roles. I'll just highlight a couple of those. One is right at the beginning of Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verse 2. And this is before God um, uh, brings order to the planet, before we work through the six days of creation. What we read is, is that the earth is formless and void, and that the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. We're meant to see these waters as like this, this chaos. And part of the symbolism here is, or, or the, the reality is, is that the Spirit is involved then, that it's, it's by the Spirit's power that order, as we see going through the next six days, the separation of, uh, of uh, light and darkness and, and the firmament and, and the waters from the dry land and so forth, and then the creation of all things. The Spirit is, is meant to be understood as, as, as the instrument that is bringing order to the chaos. And part of what we're to understand is when God gives this gift of the Spirit in fullness, you see in the Old Testament, the Spirit, I mean, the Spirit has always been present. The Spirit has been active. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit really um, came upon just key individuals uh, for specific acts, um, uh, namely kings and prophets and priests, so that they could carry out their roles uh, in the power of God. Uh, but but the Spirit of God was in some sense limited in terms of the, the, the presence of the Spirit on individuals and on the, the people of God. And so in this New Testament, what we're to understand is this is an amazing gift, a long-awaited gift that the Lord is pouring upon his people and in part a recognition, if we understand our Old Testaments, that the Spirit brings order, brings order to our lives. It brings order out of the chaos. And another key place is Ezekiel 37, when God gives the great prophet Ezekiel a vision of a valley of dry, dead uh, bones. Think of a valley, you know, just disconnected human bones lying all over the place. And God asks the prophet, can these bones live? Well, the, the normal answer would be, no, they're dead bones. Dead bones don't live. But the prophet knows who he's speaking to, so he says, Oh, Lord God, you know. <laughs> and the Lord tells him, prophesy uh, to the breath. Or, or before that, he says, um, uh, prophesy to the bones. And God causes the bones to come together. He adds muscles and sinew and, and flesh. But then we read that as Ezekiel sees these, these bones becoming bodies, there's still no life. And so then the Lord says to the prophet, prophesy to the breath and say to the breath, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they come to life. And the breath filled them and they came to life. Part of what we're to see here is that this is what the Spirit does. The Spirit brings new life where there was no life. The Spirit brings spiritual life. The Spirit opens our eyes to the things of God. The Spirit brings spiritual vitality to his people. And this same Spirit is poured out. And then there's the fire. The fire is often associated with the visible presence of God. 
think Exodus, think Moses when he comes to that strange object in the distance, a a bush that's burning, but it's not burning. (laughs) It's a fire, but the bush is not being consumed. And out of the fire speaks the Lord. Or later when the pillar of fire, the smoke uh, that led the Israelites through the wilderness And John the Baptist later says uh, in Matthew 3, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire is connected with the presence of God. Fire is also connected with judgment. But that's where that burning bush is so interesting because The judgment, the holiness of this this pure fire does not burn the bush. And that becomes the symbol of God's presence being somehow able to dwell in the midst of his people without the people being consumed. And of course, this fire becomes associated with the ardor of those who are filled with the Spirit. When the Spirit is present... There is a passion for the things of the Lord, where this presence is at work and in fullness. There is a growing appreciation for the majesty and the beauty of Jesus. There's a desire to see the kingdom made visible, the kingdom of God made visible in more and more in our own lives and in the lives of others and and really throughout the world. And I think there's a fire, I'll just, you know, like when you're reading the word and, and you're like reading it and you're like, this is so good. It's like this fire and, and you can feel it. I think that's part of the fire of the Holy Spirit who works so closely with the word, the scriptures that have been inspired by the spirit. So the spirit is connected to this wind and, and to this fire. And the significance of this event doesn't end with the knowledge that the great gift of the Spirit, that which was promised and uh, long awaited, has finally arrived. In a certain sense, this is, you know, that old expression, the Calvary has uh, arrived, as, you know, they used to say. The Spirit has arrived. And there's more. We're meant to see that the commission, the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples to make disciples of all the nations is now ready to go into effect. The good news or the gospel of redemption in Jesus is not news only for the nation of Israel. No, it is a gospel for the world. And so in Acts 4 through 11, we see how the disciples are filled then with the Spirit. They make their way out into the streets There are thousands of people who have assembled, having heard the sound of this tornado-like wind. And all of this is taking place uh, uh, in the morning, around 9 a.m., we're told, in Jerusalem. Uh, Luke tells us that the reason uh, for so many people is in part because of the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, That people, that um, uh, Jewish pilgrims in particular, have traveled. They've, They've gone on a pilgrimage from many nations around But it isn't just um, uh, uh, Jewish people. We also are told that there are proselytes, that there are Cretans, there are Arabians uh, that are also present. The people who arrive are even more confused when the disciples move into the crowds. And they begin to speak in foreign languages, foreign tongues, 
This doesn't, so sometimes people see this as a miracle of hearing, like, you know, people are suddenly given this universal translator where they can just, they hear the disciples speaking Aramaic, but they just, but they hear the Aramaic in their own language. That's not what Luke seems to be describing here. The point is, is that the Spirit has come on the disciples. The point is, is that the Spirit is at work through the speech. And what appears to be happening here is that these followers of Jesus, um, who the Spirit has filled, suddenly have this gift of, of foreign, they can speak these foreign languages that they had not previously known. They, they hadn't studied these languages. And so they're just going out among these different groups of people who have gathered. And the Spirit gives them utterance in the, the individual languages uh, that are present, uh, the people who are represented here. And so in this case, these tongues, they're not unintelligible. Um, you know, it's like they're speaking Egyptian, they're speaking Arabic or, or other languages. And this is also causing wonderment among the people. Not, now it's not just the, this, this tornado that seems to have come through. But now it's this behavior, like, how is this possible? And they point out, these are Galileans, many of them. What does that mean? That's like saying, these are people from the hills of Kentucky. These are not, okay, if you're from Kentucky, I'm not meaning that. Okay, that's my background too. So I'm just like, I'm, okay, so you can make fun of yourself, right? So anyway, but this is say that, you know, these people were not expected to be all that well-educated. And here they are, they're speaking, you know, eloquently in these foreign languages. And all of this points to God's heart. It's Christ's heart for the world. And it shouldn't surprise anybody. All the way back, when God first called Father Abraham, and God gave him these promises. Part of the promise was in Genesis 12, verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The whole project was never meant just for one nation. It was never meant just to be a Jewish or Israelite project. It was always intended to be redemption and salvation for the world. And the timing, again, in which the Holy Spirit is being poured out shows that God sends his Spirit not simply to empower us for personal growth or comfort, but to empower his people, his church, so that the good news would be taken to all the peoples. God wants his people to be a witnessing people, people who share the good news with any and all who will listen to the very ends of the earth. Jesus tells us his whole, you know, one of the great reasons for his coming was simple, simply to seek and to save what? the lost, to seek and save the lost. And so likewise, a key reason for the outpouring of the Spirit is so that his church would serve as witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and to where? To the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. And Peter will soon take the podium. He will soon preach his famous Pentecost sermon, In the remainder of chapter 2, and what we will see is that 3,000 are converted. by That's a pretty good sermon. 3,000 are converted on this day. And of course, in the power of the Spirit. The immediate response of the people to the rushing wind and uh, and these uh, relatively uneducated Galilean followers of Jesus, 
um, is twofold. Pentecost is both perplexing and it is polarizing. Okay, so it's perplexing and polarizing, verses 12 and 13. The first group of people are somewhat confused by these events. They're, they're looking for an explanation. In verse 12, their response is in the form of a question. Just simply put, what does this mean? And Peter will spend the rest of chapter, of chapter 2 answering this question. But then there's this other group of people who are dismissive of what they're seeing. They mock the disciples. Their knee-jerk reaction is, uh, yeah, they're, they sure are filled with the Spirit. Or should I say spirits? It's called new wine. And, and the, what, this is just craziness. This is, they, they've got to be drunk. And of course, Peter's going to come back to them and say, come on, y'all. <laughs> Who drinks at 9 a.m. in the morning? You know, think about that for just a, mi- a minute, and you'll see that's not a, a very good explanation. Who gets drunk at 9 a.m.? It doesn't make any sense. But this immediate reaction shows us that we shouldn't be surprised. See, we are surprised sometimes. When the evidence for faith in Jesus, the evidence that Jesus truly was who he claimed to be, in spite of all the, the, uh, the historical evidence, the biblical evidence, the, the evidence of miracles, the evidence of changed lives, the evidence of, of the change in history, it doesn't matter. There are going to be a certain group of people who just immediately dismiss what they see. And so whereas a good number find the, 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 you know, what they're seeing compelling, there's also a good number who respond exactly the opposite way. In this case, there was the visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit. The wind was heard by nearly all. The tongues of fire witnessed by over 120 people. The speaking of foreign languages uh, was also being witnessed by many, probably nearly all. And yet there is this group, and maybe they were even a majority of the people who immediately dismissed the truth. It should sadden us, but it shouldn't surprise us. It's always been the case. But let's come back to that first question. What does this mean? What is the meaning of Pentecost? And, and for the, there's, okay, so this could be like a whole series of sermons. So I'm just going to like take some of the things that we see in chapter two, okay? Chapter two of Acts. Number one, Pentecost serves as another grand fulfillment of God's promises, God's promises are true and trustworthy. Jesus said that the Spirit would come in in fulfillment of the promise of the Father in Acts 1-4. But later, what Peter's going to show you is that the promise goes way back, centuries earlier, in fact, uh, at least to the prophet Joel, where Joel writes, and it shall come to pass afterward that I, the Lord, will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. Now, this was a grand promise because that is exactly what was not happening in the days of Joel in the period of the Old Testament. This was a glorious future that is being, um, being foretold and promised. And what Peter is going to go on and show in his sermon is, what you see taking place today, it's that which was prophesied centuries earlier by the prophet Joel. The Spirit has come. The age of the Holy Spirit has arrived. And 
again. Do not doubt that God will fulfill his promises in due time. But second, Pentecost also confirms um, that the key redemptive events, it's, it's another evidence, you see, that Jesus is the Messiah. Because the Spirit doesn't come until the Messiah comes, until the Messiah achieves his purposes of ministry, until he lives that perfectly righteous life. He dies as an atoning sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, until he is raised in the body on the third day and takes his seat on the throne of heaven, in which all authority is given to him. And the timing is critical that it's only after these great events that the Spirit comes, tying the Spirit to the ascension of Jesus so that the Spirit can be even referred to. So closely are Spirit and Messiah, the Son, connected that we can refer to as the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. But you see, this is another evidence that Christ, your faith in Jesus, you see, is not misplaced. And then number three, the Spirit comes to empower his people. The Apostle Peter is exhibit A. Just weeks earlier when Jesus was arrested, do you remember what Peter's, uh, the, the kind of you know, example that Peter models for the church? He's going to see what's happening to Jesus. Hey, aren't you one of those followers from Jesus? Oh, no, 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 nah, baby, no. Nah. Even a little servant girl, all it takes is a little servant girl to say, you sound like a Galilean. Aren't you one of the followers of Jesus? And Peter swears against God. He takes an oath that I never knew him. Brave Peter. What explains that Peter? And then just within a month and a half, a couple months, Peter is boldly, confidently, eloquently preaching before thousands with power. What explains this? You see, what we're meant to see is, what explains this is, well, resurrection and the filling of the Spirit. That the Spirit empowers his people, men and women, for ministry, for witness, Uh, So that the church, so that what Jesus says is, I will build my church and the gates of hell, you need to hear this, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do not keep your eyes on the circumstances that are taking taking place around us. The church will stand. Empires will come and go. But the church of Jesus Christ will continue. It will continue in strength, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, achieving everything that God purposes the church to achieve. So the Spirit comes in power. And we need to trust. This is where, okay, we need to yield ourselves and not think we got to do this all in our own strength and intelligence and power. No, we need to learn to yield, to go to the Lord in prayer, saying, Lord Jesus, fill me anew with your Holy Spirit. Give me the words to say when I don't know what to say. And I trust that you will do this. Well, let's pray. Oh Lord, defend us with your heavenly grace. 
that we may persevere in our faith until the end and grant that we might walk in the presence and in the power of your Holy Spirit more and more until we one day enter your everlasting kingdom through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.